Greetings. Welcome to Unfortunately Required Reading. This is your lovely first in command today, Amanda. Yay! And this is Victoria, still a hot mess. Perpetually a hot mess. Uh, today, as we have been discussing, we are looking at The Great Gatsby. Or as we've been saying throughout the last two weeks, The Not-So-Great Gatsby. Or you can inflect it with The Great Gatsby? Yeah, with like two question marks. Two question marks. What are we drinking on this episode, Amanda? Today we are drinking um, a special uh, French 75, which is a Prohibition 1920s era cocktail. Uh, the bones of it are rooted in most Prohibition cocktails, lemon juice, uh, sugar, gin, and champagne. I mix up a couple things and just make it a good casual sip and drink in homage to the uh, Midwest and Southern roots of many of the other characters in The Great Gatsby. And uh, I believe we do have at least one bottle of champagne to pop on Mike because it's The Great Gatsby and we have to. We'll see if it'll actually work or if it'll just be embarrassing. I will not aim this at your face. Just That's my moneymaker. Yes! yes! We actually managed to make it work. So, so I will probably be drinking a lot of this throughout the podcast. Which, which is very um, appropriate. So I have to say, when I'm going through trying to find images for our podcast this week, there were a lot of pictures of Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, and um, I remember when that movie came out not too long ago, being concerned about DiCaprio being cast as Gatsby. I was concerned that he was a combination of too old and too young, oh, which I know sounds strange, but um, the movie, directed by Baz Luhrmann, we will definitely touch on because I feel like for a lot of, you know, the young youths, that's their introduction now to Gatsby is that gif of DiCaprio <laughs> raising his glass triumphantly behind a Baz Luhrmann, you know, backdrop. Which is all song and dance and glitter and brightness, which is just a Baz Luhrmann thing. Yep. So... The short version of a very short book, it's only nine chapters, guys, so it's actually something if you listen to the audiobook on two times, you can finish it in a day while doing things around the house. Mm -hmm. um, I have finished this book twice in a week and a half. Um, long and short of it, gentleman moves to New York. Yes. Moves to West Egg, yes. lives in a cottage. His name is Nick Carraway. Nick is unsure of himself. He's kind of broke, even though he's from a wealthy family. And he moves next door to this really crazy looking house. And he's like, all right, well, this guy seems cool, whatever. He goes to tea across the water in East Egg, which is yes. the rich, fancy, we play polo for fun area right. of things. And finds his cousin Daisy and her husband, Tom Buchanan, which we will go into. Ooh. As well as a young cheater golf player named Jordan Baker. That we're not going to talk about yet. That we're not going to talk about yet. <laughs> he starts to get a little bit of the background of things going on. Most of this book is exposition. 90% of this book is exposition. Which is, you'll see in, when we talk about the movies a bit more, why that's a challenge for filmmakers. Yes, and humans. And humans in general. He goes back, gets invited to one of Gatsby's parties, and meets him. Jordan gets called into the library, craziness ensues, and as the book continues on, we see Nick Carraway try and figure out who this Gatsby is, as well as help be part of the reunite or the reunification, I guess, of Daisy and Jay Gats, or Jay Gatsby as he's changed his name to. Yeah. Um the funny thing about the great Gatsby is Actually, um, shout out to Crash Course Literature, which helped me get through this. Uh, there's a lot of Romeo and Juliet parallels to Gatsby that I'd actually completely forgotten about, which might explain one of the reasons I hate this book. <laughs> it does very much feel like Romeo and Juliet when it comes to dealing with time and relationships that don't make sense and characters that seem to exist only to be annoying. And I will admit that I have been converted over the past couple weeks to the Yay Gatsby camp, which, Mr. Harrison, I don't know what the hell you were doing our junior year of high school because I hated this book so much. And now I've come back to read it. I've read a million commentaries. I'll give you guys the name of all the books when we're done. Yeah, we have a reading list. We have a reading list for you. And judging this partially through Fitzgerald's life, the TMZ version of it, and just all the little symbols, 
and realizing how kind of sad and pathetic Fitzgerald actually was. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely talk on that more <laughs> because realistically, we could have an entire other podcast dedicated to Fitzgerald we and could. his exploits. We could. <laughs> um, but for the sake of brevity and to hopefully make this bottle of champagne last, <laughs> we're going to bookend with uh, a brief talk about Fitzgerald because especially with a book like Gatsby, we cannot ignore authorial intent. Exactly. And um, last show we did talk about authorial intent with um, Adams and Watership Down is that that was one of the most distracting things about uh, Watership Down was Adams continuing to say, this isn't an allegory, this isn't an allegory, this isn't an allegory. We can't ignore Fitzgerald and the Bones of Gatsby. We, we, we can't. We, we just can't now. Um, I'm sort of on the opposite spectrum that I actually didn't have to read this in high school, but it was the favorite book of my former best friend. And the way he gushed about this novel, um, spoke about it as you would a fine woman or a lovely glass of wine. It really soured me on it because I, this slender little leg of a thing, it just didn't make sense that you could find that much meaning into it. But I've softened on Gatsby as a character, I think. You know. And and the important thing to remember here is it's not all beaded headbands and flapper dresses and champagne like you're going to see anytime somebody says they're having a Gatsby party. Right. Um, and I, I do think that Gatsby tries to touch on some of these things like the racism. Oh, yes. And the sexism. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, that is always interesting to me when people have this very romantic view of the 1920s. That's one of my least favorite things. So uh, I think I do blame Gadsby a little bit for this whole idea that the 20s was just this giant party until it wasn't. <laughs> so we're going to start with a few points just as we've gone through the book. Gatsby is an uncomfortable character. Mm, yeah, he, as as the kids would say, he's very problematic. Yes. And you'll see a lot of this, too, if you're, one, reading the book like you, you should, mm -hmm. um, two, watching the movies. Gatsby, when he's at his parties, which he's never really at his parties, he's no. in the background looking to see if, if certain people are there. Yeah, he's physically there, but he's never there. Never there, there. He has kind of that uncomfortable nature where he's, he's a bit stalkerish. I mean, I, I love your restraints in saying a bit. I mean, the boy moved cross-country, changed his name, and then made an empire to get close to a lady who rejected him years beforehand. Uh, so I do admire your restraint, but... Okay, so extremely stalkerish. Yeah, remarkably so. If, if, if a real human being did this, we would be horrified. We would see this on Law & Order SVU. This kind of reminds me of... What was that movie that everybody was in love with a few years ago off that Nick Star Sparks book? The Notebook? Yes. Where in that film, which I watched under duress, um, he's hold one of the guys is holding on to a Ferris wheel a high, high, high above the ground and threatening the girl that if she won't go out with him, he's going to jump. And yeah, internally, I'm like, that that's something you call the police for. Yeah. Um, and that does, that does make Gatsby a little bit... Um, hard to like because I think especially the way Fitzgerald uh, presents him frames him is that these things aren't negative that of course if a woman rejects you you would go cross-country and reinvent yourself and then maybe just maybe she was wrong all along I think one of the most telling lines in it is when Nick goes, well, you can't repeat the past. Repeat the past? Why, well, of, of course, course you can. can. And he's like losing his mind because somebody tells you, no, 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 no. Everybody has moved on, friend. Understand how poignant that line is that we both immediately could recite it. Oh, yeah. It's, um, there are some lines in here that really do stick out, including the entire conversation where Jordan Baker is a careless driver. And uh, that was actually stolen, evidently verbatim, from a conversation with Zelda Fitzgerald, oh, which Zelda. happened a lot. And you want to talk about problematic, Fitzgerald had this lovely habit of plagiarism, of taking things from his wife's journal. Yeah. Um, one of the commentaries that I read, it was in a book called So We Read On, the lady was like, well, this is just what great writers do. They just steal from other sources. And it just kind of like blew up in my head because if you try to use that argument in a college classroom, 
you will get kicked out. Right. Someone, <laughs> someone will throw something at you. And more importantly, let's not ignore the inherent uh, sexism in that line. Exactly. That if Zelda then had plagiarized from Scott, F. Scott, uh, her career would be over. There'd be nothing left of her. Um, and that speaks true for female writers to this day, that a man can steal a woman's work, but if a woman dare bat too many eyes at a man's work, it's a, a high crime. Or it's a love letter to, or it's an allusion to, you'll, you'll see that quite a bit. Right. I mean, even to the point where women still publish under their initials Yeah, quite often. Um, B.E. Schwab, for example, J.K. Rowling. Mm-hmm. J.K. Rowling's publishers told her that no boy would want to read Harry Potter if a woman had written it. Well, that's to paraphrase the, yes. the background story on it. The ovaries make it invalid. Heck, the Brontes all co- published under Bell, like, as their last name, as guys. Yep. Anyway. Again, like with Watership Down, you can see that we're desperately trying to avoid talking about how uncomfortable Gatsby is as a character. Yes. It's kind of like when you have that friend who keeps making really stupid decisions about their girlfriend or boyfriend, and you keep going, no, no, you can't, you can't do that. You can't do that. I love you, but please stop. I feel like that's the entire book, The Great Gatsby, is we are Nick Carraway watching our friends, like, eat Ben and Jerry's and get, like, wine drunk in the middle of the day, crying over, like, a high school yearbook. And it's like, you can't be, bro, you, you can't. You can't do this. <laughs> buying buying a mansion across from your ex-girlfriend is always a bad idea. That's, yeah, again, <laughs> if this happened in real life right now, this would be a Law & Order SVU case. What's interesting, too, and we'll come back to, I'm going to make you defend Tom Buchanan at I some point I will get on the soapbox. <laughs> but there are a lot of careless characters in this book, and the rumor mill around Gatsby is even bigger than Regina George from Mean Girls. I, I had to give her that Mean Girls reference. Yes. Even to the point where I, I feel like Nick Carraway is their Gretchen Wieners. It's <laughs> right. And Nick Carraway is such an interesting um character uh the way he uses language i think is one of the most interesting things in the world um almost as if to mask that he's not actually that smart Mm -hmm. like he's kind of like that guy who has like those word-a-day calendars and he'll drop like pontificate in daily speech but he does not know what it means what's interesting too is you'll feel a lot of uh, mick caraway's hesitancy around the wealthy um at one point in time he's going on about oh yeah well even after the first time I met them, I got to use their first name. And that's actually a Fitzgeraldism. That is. He was very uncomfortable calling people by their first names unless they gave him permission or he had known them for a long period of time. Because F. Scott Fitzgerald was a house elf who lived in someone's shoe. Did they give Master Socks when he published Tender is the Night? They sure did not. Hence why he died <laughs> alone. So we do see Nick quite often cleaning up everybody's messes, even after Gatsby is dead, to the point where he even wipes off a swear word that some kids have written on the steps of his mansion because he doesn't want that. It's, it's again, defending your friend. Right. Going, no, 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 no. You don't get to do this to them. I get to do this to them in my book, but you don't get to do this to right. them. And, and then taking it further, almost um, making a saint out of Gatsby, then turning him into this almost Christ-like figure who is just misguided um those opening lines of Gatsby turned out all right it was what preyed upon him that foul dust so again Gatsby is in no ways uh responsible for any of the bad things he's done or the dubious things he's done it's the dust around him the miasma that's what got Gatsby we're clutching our pearls clutching them I mean it, it truly does sound like old like southern debutante talk of like that one friend who got pregnant too young Mm-hmm. Where, bless her heart. Is bless her name. heart, she fell pregnant. <laughs> as if it was something that happened via aliens. I think that's always fun. It's, it's like when you hear a Southern person say, fell pregnant, you're going, so it's like the flu? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it, it came in the air, like it descended upon the house. It's a prolonged illness for which they had to go to Europe. Uh, or if you are from... Uh, Known for North Texas, uh, Lake Worth. Oh, there you go. <laughs> All right. So we promised this the last episode, and you probably heard me 
um, just absolute silent. You mm-hmm. could hear me staring at Amanda for this. You could. But uh, I'd like you to defend Tom Buchanan. Tom Buchanan. Where do I begin? Um, okay, so I'm not going to defend Tom Buchanan as a good person. Zero part of me that's saying he's a good person. Uh, he's a terrible husband. Uh, yeah. Terrible human creature. But oh, And he's not a polo player. No, he doesn't play polo. Thank God. Uh, thank, thank, thank the Lord. Um, but I will say, if you ever want to do a character study on one, the 1920s, and two, toxic masculinity, you have no greater example than Tom Buchanan. This person who has been riding his coattails from his 20s for his, just beating that dead horse for as long as he can. The quote-unquote horse he doesn't ride in polo. Yeah, um... He he is so crushed under the burden of expectations that are thrust upon him. And I am not taking away his agency like Fitzgerald tries to take away Gatsby's. He is fully responsible for every bad thing he does. But I think the problem that a lot of people have is they try to judge him by modern standards. And I think you always have to be careful with books like this. And especially um, as we are a more conscious society... We can't fully wash our hands of it was a different time, but we also can't ignore that. Uh, Truly, the standards that we hold others to today just did not exist during that time. And it'd be truthfully unfair to ask for a Tom Buchanan who was hashtag me too. That's. (laughs) I'm sorry, I just tried to imagine that. Feminist bro Tom Buchanan, he has like his polo shirt that says me too. He has his, like, pussy hat. Well, just his, his constant bringing up of the book The Rise of the Colored Races. Just uh. every time he says that, my eyes flinch because it reminds me of, you know, just as to kind of do the, the stereotypical thing. This is like when you go home for Thanksgiving and you have that one relative that's just going on and on yeah. and on about how they feel that insert race here is causing destruction of the country and how insert race here can't come to our borders because they're just going to screw everything up. Right. And again, this might be a lot like with Watership Down, where when you're reading this character in high school, depending on when you went to high school, this kind of person just didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So when I was in high school, you know, just getting towards the end of the Bush years, I mean, Tom Buchanan's existed but they were quiet and just like owned companies and were content to be racist behind bars and doors. Um, in 2018, that person is everywhere. So I think that's where it also gets really, really hard to kind of be on a soapbox about him. Right. Uh, which you can see by the softballs that I'm lobbing at his character. It is harder and harder to defend him as more and more people. He's also a bit of a, a red flag. So you can always tell a lot about a person uh, based on who they relate to in a novel. So if you and a bunch of your friends are reading The Great Gatsby and your friend says, I really relate to Tom Buchanan. Run. Yeah, run. (laughs) Run very far. Or like if you're dating a guy or a girl and they're like, I really related to Tom Buchanan. That's I'm I'm throwing five red flags in your direction. And honestly, if somebody says they relate to Daisy, I get uncomfortable. I would just be concerned. Because, I mean, you do have this delicious double standard through the whole book where yes. Tom can sleep with Myrtle left and right and it's not no left big... and right. Okay. Okay. So Tom sleeps with Myrtle, but also they go into a whole bunch of things about how they had to leave Chicago because of quote unquote one of his sprees. How even after their wedding, when they were on their honeymoon and they were in Santa Barbara briefly, mm-hmm. he got into a car accident with one of the local maids in his car. Right. But Daisy goes off and has her little affair, and it's a big deal. Myrtle, there's even a reference from Catherine Myrtle's sister saying, this is the only beau she's ever had. She's been married for such many years. Mm -hmm. And you're sitting there going, okay, well, we're supposed to think Myrtle is trashy. She's described as trashy. She's described as trying so hard to have class where she's wearing a fancy dress and telling everybody, I just put this on when I don't care what I look like. Or she's got a couch that looks like it came from Versailles and it's patterned after Versailles. It's just kind of heartbreaking through this whole book that, you know, technically Daisy is very similar to Myrtle. She yes. just comes from money. Right. And you see that, um, 
you see that a lot in the book and then also in real human life mm-hmm. uh, that money is a good excuse and a good waiver of wand to make problems go away. Mm-hmm. And that it's okay if a rich person, especially if they're rich and white, mm-hmm. can do a thing. But if they're poorer and white, or poorer or any other color, or really just any other color, uh, these things are more or less excusable. Well, there's even that whole part where they're going over the bridge into New York and they see those three people of color, because I refuse to use the phrasing he used. Thank you. Um, and they have a white driver. and. They make this big point of the fact they drove by people of color. And oh my gosh, they think they have money. And it just kind of hit me going, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm sorry. I know that we're supposed to be looking at this from a perspective of when this was written. But, but at the same time, that's still something we deal with now. It is. I mean, how many times do we sit there and use really awful phrases about, you know, people who've made it in music or film? Or it's just like, oh, well, you know they have money now and whatever. They're still low class. It's like, no, 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 no. You don't get to say that about Denzel Washington. What is no. wrong with you? You don't get to say that out of Idris Elba. Oh, Idris Elba is beautiful. Yeah. And he's a really good actor. Not just that he's beautiful. <sighs> okay. Anyway, moving on from Idris Elba. Moving on. Moving on. So there are a lot of symbols in this book. This book beats you over the head with symbols. Not yes. to the point of... Nathaniel Hawthorne beating you over the head with symbols. Yes. But everything's a symbol in this. Yes. We've got the green light. We do have the green light. We have the eyes of T.J. Eckelberg. We do. Which I had to stop saying J. Alfred Proofrock because my brain, for some reason, kept translating it to that. It's okay. Uh, we even have the funeral wreath in Myrtle's shopping list when she's talking about everything she needs for her dog. Yes. We're talking about the entire quote of being a funeral wreath when Daisy had to leave Chicago. Right. We are talking about the clock that Gatsby basically knocks over when he's standing with Daisy to preserve time. That all just reads so like fanfic I wrote when I was 16. And I remember reading this book in high school and just trying to read it to get through it for class the next day and catching none None of of this and having my teacher just sit there being like, Okay, how did any of you miss the green light? How did any of you miss the eyes? And I kind of feel like if you're not reading it from a critical perspective, it's kind of easy to do when you're younger. But I also, so I'm going to make another allusion to Romeo and Juliet. Um, You, like me, might have been an edgelord in high school. Yeah, just a bit. Uh, So I know I had a hard time with saccharine descriptions of love. And flighty teenagers who didn't have problems. Fun fact, I'm from the Bruce Wayne Academy of Successful Orphans. So I had a hard time with any book that had this level of sentimentality and flowery language about anything. And I think it's just, it's easy to look at these characters and hate all of them. Mm -hmm. And when you hate them, especially when you're young, you don't pay attention. And and we mentioned this with uh, Watership Down. When you have to read things under duress, unless it really captures you, you already have built up a wall against these characters. Mm -hmm. So one, you've twisted my arm. I don't like this book. Two, I'm a 15-year-old edgelord. (laughs) I'm a vampire. My vampire name is Lilith Vitor. (laughs) I will not respond to my muggle name, and I don't (laughs) like these characters. (laughs) Wow, this is kind of like looking at a picture from high school. Exactly! So, I just I think these characters are so easy to hate, it's easy to write them off. Exactly. And when you're in high school and you're forced to read this book, you also don't have the same life experiences. No. And I think this is one of those books that you get a different perspective every time you read Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Um, when you're in high school, like, and this is something, and I've talked about this in our last episode too, it drives me a little bit crazy when people are like, oh, well, it's just too early for teenagers to read this book. No. No, you just get different things out of it. You get the idea of, oh, look, you know, all this money, all this wealth, all this spending, it comes to out to nothing. Um, I was going to say comes to naught, and then I realized that, you know, I don't need to be that fancy. <laughs> it's Not yet, at least. You get older and you read it in, in college after you've had your heart broken the first time, and you're like, I can repeat the past. I can make this person love me again. And then you read it as a 30-year-old woman, and you're just going, oh, wow. Oh, wow. I I relate to all this. 
I've, I've had that boyfriend who's like, I'm going to move to where you are. And you're going, no, 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 it's not necessary. I kind of, I still dig you, but no, 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 please stay where you are because I have established the life that I'm going to live. Yeah. Have I just, am, am I your Nick Carraway? Sometimes. Oh God. <laughs> I refuse to relate to Daisy. I just did, but I refuse to relate to Daisy. <laughs> I was I was parlaying you more to a Gatsby that survives. <laughs> I, I'm not wealthy. <sighs> okay, I'm upper middle class. Mm-hmm. Um, you are white. I am white. As Nick Carraway says, I have many advantages that are not afforded to other people. Mm-hmm. I am your magical chocolate Nick Carraway. Oh my god! Don't call yourself that. <laughs> Anyway, how uncomfortable are you at home right now? Please let us know in the comments. <laughs> and give us five stars. I don't know. Desperately. So, this is one of the ones... You also neglected to mention one of the most important symbols, though. Which one? The color yellow. Ooh! Go into that one a little bit. So, fun fact, I hate the color yellow because I used to do pageants. Um, <laughs> yellow as a color is very important to the great Gatsby. Uh, think of, you know, the color of Gatsby's car, the pale yellow of almost everything, the pale yellow of Daisy's hair, the pale yellow of a Daisy. Uh, wow, you're right. I did miss that entirely. Yeah. Glad I'm here. Uh, yellow then symbolizes a lot of things like innocence, happiness, but also gold, materialistic wealth, money, earthly aspirations and then imagine like a sun gatsby's car careening into chaos Ooh, even the sunlight coming in through the room when it stops raining after they meet is yellow mm. there you go i just saved a bunch of you ap english kids zero in on yellow zero in on yellow always talk about the eyes of tj eckelberg the green light we're giving you some freebies here guys oh yeah absolutely I don't miss AP English. Anyway, so as you put in here, do we dare speak of feminism? There's so much of me that wants to see Daisy Buchanan as like a proto-feminist. As like someone who is trying to buck against the conventions that hold her down. And then she says a line that I as a Southern woman and you as a Southern woman may have heard something very similar to. I hope she is a pretty little fool. To her infant daughter who can't understand her. So really that line is for us. Again, AP English students. Uh, that line is for you. And it's so painfully destructive. So the times and so still things that... Remarkably modern. Yeah, you still hear this from, from women. Marry rich. Marry up. Um, Don't have too many opinions though. Don't get too mouthy. Uh, yeah, you're in your 30s and you're not married. I'm a little uncomfortable with this. Mm -hmm. um, I will tell you, at my rehearsal dinner for my wedding, I had at least 15 people ask me when my husband and I were going to start having children. We have, I have a stepdaughter. She's fantastic. We don't need to have children. And I refuse to tell any of them, if we do have them, to be that I hope they're beautiful little fools. Right. I got told at 17 uh, that if I didn't get married soon, I was going to die alone. 17? My great-grandmother. I mean, I remember my mom telling me at, I think it was 29, if you decide not to get married and have kids, I think that's okay. You're going to be okay. And you're yes, looking I, at her going, is this something you truly believe or is this? Yeah. So there's, I, Daisy is a bitter pill to swallow mm -hmm. uh, because I think so, so, so much of especially female readers want to like her and then she's just impossible to like and then our only other two major characters are uh, basically a framed whore she's framed not whore. one but she's framed yeah. as and a woman who cheats at golf like how do you how dare she i mean you can the scandal she she supposedly kicked her ball which is wrong you shouldn't do this but just the fact that everybody goes, oh, yeah, she cheated at golf. It's fine. Whatever. Women aren't capable of, of having integrity. And every time I or read, playing golf. I'm like, oh, why? Why? 
But, but I think that line makes us come to grips with, again, authorial intent, some of Fitzgerald's sort of ingrained misogyny. Fitzgerald also did not have a very happy life. No. Um, no, he he did not. So when his when this side of paradise came out, it was kind of a surprise. It, it was, was one of those things where a 23-year-old had published a book that most reviewers of the day thought was far outside of his depth. It was very unique to them and was honestly something Scribner's didn't want to publish. It took a ton of rounds of reviewing and mm -hmm. editing and Max Perkins at Scribner's going, please, oh, please, oh, please publish this. For the love of God, we're too stuffy. Please publish something. Right. And Perkins is actually responsible for some of the quote-unquote, great novels of the day. Um, he's responsible for Gatsby. He's responsible for Hemingway coming up through the ranks, and not oh, just Hemingway. in small presses where they were publishing experimental works, mm -hmm. uh, which we'll go into when we talk about Hemingway. Oh, yes. Oh, Hemingway. Anyway, anyway, moving on. At one point in time, the book was so popular, The Side of Paradise, that one child in school was asked, who wrote... Um, Paradise Lost, and his response was not Milton. It was, oh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, without hesitation. Fitzgerald loved this story. He cut it out of the newspaper and kept it in a binder. This man saved so many clippings. That's one of the reasons that um, historians and writers and stuff can go back and do all this research, because it's all these clippings about, oh, look at this wild party we threw. Oh, look at this. And just he saved everything. He even saved the bad reviews. He hated Nellie Bly so much because she told people not to read his books. She said that he was not appropriate for the time. He hated her so much. He made a character in The Great Gatsby to shame her. Dan Cody's girlfriend or wife, the one who steals all his money. Yeah. That's based on Nellie Bly. That's how much he hated her. I, I, I ascribe to be that petty one day. He was petty as anyway. <laughs> Can you feel me like holding back, like like there's a small child here, even though there's not a small child, there? right? Like we're we're definitely we're we're lobbing softballs at Fitzgerald because again we could have a whole other podcast on Fitzgerald's nonsense, but it is important to glean these little insights because I think it shows how he writes characters, and that all comes to a head in Gatsby, that you have an idealistic man child. Mm -hmm. who thinks that he can change the world because love. You have this sycophantic uh, groupie who is new to the party. And, oh, God, the, the relationship between Nick Carraway and Jay Gatsby makes me, like, uncomfortable. You have Tom Buchanan, who is every bad ever in one person. And you have Daisy Buchanan, who is a pair of ovaries. She's a lamp. So the question is, dare we talk about film adaptations? Briefly. Okay. So there are going to be two versions that if you go on Amazon and look up The Great Gatsby, first of all, you're going to see the 2013 Bob Lerman one before the book, which kind of hurts my soul. Yeah. Um, following that, you're going to see the 1974 adaptation with Robert Redford. Robert Redford is a fox. I don't care how old he is right now. We watched this last night and I was like, damn, son. Anyway. I wasn't invited to this party. I should have invited you, you to this party. Have. I am your Nick Carraway. You didn't invite me to your party. Oh, I'm going to have to send you a written invitation with the chauffeur I don't have. Heck yes. I'm going to turn my husband into the chauffeur for this. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. So you have the 2013 adaptation, which hurts me a lot because Tobey Maguire is Nick Carraway. Yes, he and is. It's hard to distance him from Spider-Man. So Why I can, is Spider-Man telling Calvin Candy to stop stalking this one woman? I um, <laughs> I think I said, stop it, Spider-Man. You're ruining everything about four or five That was literally times. a message that I received while I was at work. <laughs> no, Lorman does a great job of capturing the symbols, of capturing the images for this book. Yes. But he somehow makes a two and a half hour movie out of a nine chapter book. And I think realistically, though, you could. So I'm going to get another soapbox because I'm very short. Um, I don't hate the Baz Luhrmann version. 
I think that it really captures the opulence of the parties. Uh, because that's one thing that's hard to wrap your head around when you read it. Is just how fun and amazing and wonderful Gatsby's parties are. Um, especially in comparison to Tom Buchanan's parties. Tom Buchanan's parties suck. They're boring. They're boring. And all you do is you hate him and he gets off on that. And he hates Gatsby's parties. Because I mean, they're fun and they have light and they have life. And you get to enjoy this bootlegger's pool that he doesn't get into until the end. Oh. See, and I feel like the Boz Lerman one does a really good job of, like you said, capturing the fun of the party. The one from this from 74 has like these creepy twins that dance together and just a bunch of people who are drunk and look really sad, which, you know, is in the book too, yeah. but... The Lerman party you kind of would go to and be like, all right, you know. Right, I mean, it really is like a 1920s Moulin Rouge. Okay, so we will go into the fact that I'm going to get hate mail for hating Moulin Rouge. But what? <laughs> what? Send, send love letters to Amanda. Hit me with softballs, but not real softballs. Because <laughs> those hurt even more. Like Nerf softballs. Um, I, I mean, yeah, it, it's as if the person who made Moulin Rouge made Great Gatsby, which is what happened. It's exactly what happened. So I think that's why I love it. I love Moulin Rouge. So I will say the houses are very different in both movies. The houses are very different. You have this weird, gothic, creepy style in um, the Boslerman one, which I can kind of get behind because Gatsby's house, while not expressly described to the point where you could like do a drawing of it, is, what nerd is doing a drawing of Gatsby's okay, house? Okay, a lot of nerds are doing drawings of Gatsby's house. Nerd. Listen, Zelda Fitzgerald used to do drawings of these characters. Uh-huh. So, what is it? Scott Fitzgerald said he, quote, knew Gatsby better than his own child. That's sad. Which is sad, because poor Scotty, man. She was awesome. Anyway, sad. Scotty went to Vassar. He critiqued her for going to Vassar. And then all I can think of is Lisa Simpson talking about Vassar. And her dad going, there will be no Vassar, what is it? I'll ha- I've had enough of your Vassar bashing. Yes. Vassar is a great school. I didn't get to go there. We're not talking about that. I didn't even apply. Uh, Second podcast, us ranting about F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway. I, I promise you that we could have like a 15 Part, podcast yeah. episode situation of just me going on about how much Hemingway loved and despised Fitzgerald at the same time. I feel like that can be set out in most of his contemporaries. Yeah, Hemingway really didn't like people, which is I was funny. about to say, Hemingway didn't like humans. He wanted to be around humans, but he didn't like humans. Yes. He had, like, the perfect first wife and then bailed out on her for an editor of Vogue. And it's kind of... Anyway, we'll go into that at some point in time. Oh, yeah, we will read Hemingway. <laughs> it's going to happen. We have no choice. So just some sad stories about Fitzgerald, because I feel like you need to know this. Yes. At one point in time, he wasn't making money writing stories anymore. He's just having a really, really hard time. So we went to Hollywood to fix scripts. He had to work with a bunch of people that he hated, and he had panned yep. in New York, which was not great. He was living at the Garden of Allah, which is no longer there, which I would have loved to drink there because Benchley was there, Parker was there, and evidently Fitzgerald was there. Gas. Gas. He wrote a postcard to himself promising that he would visit one day. Just that I can't think of anything sadder than writing yourself a postcard because you are so lonely. Yeah, I think both of us made notes about that in our script, that that is the saddest thing that I've ever read is the idea of having to write yourself a postcard. And I think we both promised that we would posthumously send him a postcard. Yeah, I want to send him a postcard to the cemetery and just be like, hey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that this happened. So from all accounts, he did sleep with other women after Zelda went to the multiple asylums. Yeah, that's it. Which Um, asylum? He constantly had the same hope as Gatsby, that it was all going to work out in the end, that they were going to be back together. Yep. That her, so she was diagnosed schizophrenic at the age, but to be fair, everybody di- was diagnosed schizophrenic. That's just kind of how it was. Nobody really knew what bipolarism was. Nobody really knew the things that we or know Or just now. an unhappy marriage. Yeah, an extremely unhappy marriage in some parts. Like, they, I would push back entirely on Zelda being, like, really mentally ill. Not saying that she didn't have, like, you know, flare-ups of depression or anxiety. But I would 100% push back on Zelda being mentally ill. I think she was just unhappy in a marriage to a complicated and tiresome man. 
But I mean, how could you not be coming from a situation where you'd been mostly taken care of for a long time? Right. You had been the bell of the ball. You had been the center of attention. And then you meet F. Scott Fitzgerald, who couldn't take care of a plant that had already been watered. Exactly. And you go on and you live this life, this very tenuous life, because, you know, if he's not publishing articles, they're not making money. And she came from a culture that didn't work. Right. And just going on to these trips to France and being pushed aside because he needed to write and all this stuff. And it's hard because it's like now I can kind of see it from both perspectives, but I still kind of always have Zelda's back. Yeah. It's, um, the really heartbreaking thing is when she was in her forties, I believe it was, I believe it was her late forties. She ended up dying in the institution she was in the day before she was supposed to have electroshock treatment because a, a security guard there lit a fire and it burned it down. Um, and this is way, way, way after her husband has died of a heart attack, which there are a few different ideas of how he had a heart attack in his forties. Isn't there some suicide conjecture? There is some, but the majority of it is that he just drank too damn much. And Sheila Graham, his girlfriend from the time backs that up. Um, she actually wrote a book called beloved infidel, which just, describes her life growing up in England, coming to the U.S. to Hollywood, pretending to be the British elite, and then hooking up with Fitzgerald. And Fitzgerald flat out telling her, I'm never divorcing my wife. Please don't ask me to marry you. It's not going to happen. He loved Zelda, but he loved Zelda in a weird way that... Almost like the way Gatsby loved Daisy. Yeah. In an infantilized uncomfortable, narcissistic, almost abusive kind of way. I'm not going to say almost. I I'm really say abusive. You're gonna, I'll, you, I'll go with you that. Just I've, been, keep, I've been being way too soft on Fitzgerald. Yeah, considering how many words you dedicate to being angry at Fitzgerald, I'm the one not pulling any punches. It was in its own way abusive and toxic. I think my favorite story is actually from A Movable Feast by Hemingway. When he's talking about going on this trip with Fitzgerald to get this car back. And... It's just, there are so many details about Scott in it that are, are inappropriate, but hilarious. But it's Hemingway, so. Uh, yeah, Hemingway had this this tendency to be like, oh, but I'm perfect for this guy. And listen, I think we've all been there at a party. Absolutely. But, uh, he was discussing how they went to go pick up this car and they had to drive it back. Mm-hmm. And how at one point in time they stopped at a hotel. And Fitzgerald had somehow convinced himself that he was dying of a lung infection. He had no fever. He had no cold. He was not sick. Nothing was going on. There was really no indication that he was ill, but he refused to get out of bed. And Hemingway was like, all right, what do you want me to do? I need you to get a thermometer. It's at the time of night where every drugstore and pharmacy or chemist, as some of you say, was closed across town. There was nowhere to get this. So he had to call the front desk. The front desk found one that went under your armpit. Yay, specialized medicine. Praise be. Um, he brings it up, gives it to Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald puts it under his armpit, leaves it there for like five minutes. And it's like, it says I'm normal. It's wrong. Has Hemingway put it under his own armpit to prove that it's the right temperature. And you can just feel Hemingway being like, oh my God, dude, calm down. There's a whole part about how Fitzgerald had to call his wife, had to talk to her, couldn't be without her. Um, and you were telling me quite a few stories about Fitzgerald being having concerns about his manhood. Yeah, so Charles Baudelaire is the person that I want to be when I grow up. Um, he famously got to translate a lot of Edgar Allan Poe's work into French. And um, Fitzgerald wrote to Baudelaire a few times um, complaining and being very concerned that he was um, too large. Which, uh, nice flex there, but also stop it. To which Baudelaire then had to respond in a letter saying, I'm sure it's fine. I just, I can't imagine writing to my friend being like, I'm worried my genitalia is too big. Right. Right. I, I don't, I don't know under what set of circumstances that's a conversation that two people have with each other, but, um, I'm glad that it happened. I mean, like, frankly, I don't think I've ever called you or texted you and been like, I think my boobs are too big. I have for you. Okay. That's true. I have. I'm like going back going, wait. I absolutely have. Well, I mean, it's hard to find bras when you're past a double D, okay? Don't judge us. Don't turn the podcast off. 
I think, um, and, and we're kind of just panning at this point in time, so feel free to do whatever you want. But I know that Zelda, if you look at the pictures of her, she was always described as this great beauty, but none of the, the pictures really do her justice from everything I've read. You'll see pictures of her and you're like, okay, she looks pretty normal. Mm-hmm. She looks pretty much straight Alabama. I don't really know what you want. Straight Alabama. And everybody who was her contemporary at the time was like, oh, no, 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 no. Because you couldn't see the gold of her hair. You couldn't see her vitality. You couldn't see her basically dancing naked on a table in a speakeasy. So it's it's odd. Yeah. It's very odd. And I mean, Wait, stop, collaborate, and listen. The gold of her hair? The gold of her hair. I'm bringing this back to Gatsby. It. Do it. The yellow that he keeps describing in Gatsby. And the yellow of Daisy Buchanan's hair. He is obsessed with his wife. He is obsessed with having their heyday back. I'm telling this is you. It's not an accident. Yeah, I'm, I've just saved, what, 150 AP English students? Seriously, just send us an email. We'll help you with your paper. I won't. Okay. <laughs> I will send you a brief paragraph that probably is instigated by the champagne. Yes. <laughs> what's, what's our email address? Uh, it would be unfortunately required reading, reading at gmail.com. Okay. I, I, I remember it. I just like making her do it. She does. Um <laughs> No, and I and honestly, the more that um, Victoria talks about Fitzgerald, the more I'm finding parallels to how he wrote Gadsby. The like, maybe Hemingway is Tom Buchanan. Oh, oh, I don't want to think about it, but I, I do. That's, mm. I do. He's either a weird hodgepodge of Tom Buchanan or Nick Carraway. Mm. But I can't imagine Hemingway being supportive of anything. That would kind of go into the whole thing of uh, him not wanting to be called a polo player, but not because Hemingway was a polo player, but because he was always like, I'm masculine, but let's not talk about it. Got into like two plane crashes, dude. Anyway. That's for a bonus show. That's, that's, that's for a bonus show. Anyway. So Scotty Fitzgerald ended up donating all of her dad's papers to Princeton. So if you go to the Princeton website, you can see a lot of them that have been scanned digitally now. Yes. So you can see his little individual edits on different pieces that he's written. Which is very sweet, honestly. It's very sweet. And her papers were all donated to Vassar. Um, Ooh, Vassar. Not get a sponsor. Including her Christmas list, which is really sweet and very innocent, especially at a time where her parents were drinking a lot. Yeah. And leaving her with other people. A lot of other people. Oh, anyway. Another bonus episode. <laughs> Another bonus episode. Um, Scotty is no longer with us. Sheila Graham is no longer I mean, with I, us. I mean, I hope not. <laughs> I actually was reading something today, and Zelda Fitzgerald in September of 1918 yeah. gave a flask to Scott Fitzgerald, Scott Fitzgerald that was mm-hmm. engraved yes. to us. And I'm like, wow, oh. it has been a hundred years years since this happened oh okay wow and then that's when i feel even older than normal yeah i don't i didn't know it was possible it existential aches from people who are already dead uh, okay so since we've been rambling and i apologize well i have been rambling i don't apologize um there were some sources obviously that we reviewed for this podcast so just so you know them these are great things there are a lot of them that you can get on audiobook as well um we had Maureen Corgan's And So We Read On. She's actually the NPR book reviewer, so she's really good. We have Careless People, Murder, Mayhem, and the Invention of the Great Gatsby by Sarah Churchwell. Beloved Infidel by Sheila Graham, which is Fitzgerald's last girlfriend. It is really hard to get a hold of this book unless you go on Amazon and buy a used copy from the 60s, um, which they're like seven bucks, so Just it's it. interesting. Bobbed Hair and Bathtub Gin by Marion Mead, which I feel every woman should read. It's phenomenal. Um, I started to read Z, a novel of Zelda Fitzgerald by Teresa Ann Fowler. That's really good, but at the same time, you have to remember it's fiction, and she's very focused on Zelda, which so am I, so it's easy to be sympathetic. Yes. You have Zelda by Nancy Milford, pardon me. Um, You have The Collected Writings of Zelda Fitzgerald, edited by Matthew Bricoli, and Once Again to Zelda by Marlene Wagman-Geller who has a lot of books about female influence in famous male lives, as well as just famous women in general. And she's phenomenal to read. She comes out with something every few years. Yeah. All right. As always, we are on pretty much every major podcast server now. Woohoo! Yes, thank you to uh, Victoria's tireless efforts. 
really it's it's because we have an awesome podcast host but um this includes itunes so no longer do you have to kind of click around to try and find it you can just go to the big boys mm-hmm. um if you want to follow us on twitter we're at required readin four so required r-e-a-d-i-n four we're on instagram at unfortunately required you can email us at unfortunately required reading at gmail.com and we have a private group a group hi on hi. facebook at unfortunately required reading champagne is phenomenal i highly recommend it in the middle of a saturday same i'm happy that i get to come here almost well now two times a month Woo-hoo! uh drink and talk about books so next time, because it's coming up on my birthday and Amanda's amazing and made the suggestion, we're going to tackle Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. In which I make Victoria drink absinthe. Yes. Um, and I talked to you about how this book was basically a TMZ story that got turned into a chapter book. Do you think we can go do a good cheers on my... Let's try. One, two, three. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.